welcome everybody. We're going to go ahead and uh, and get started with our first ever uh, fireside chat as part of our American Council of Blind DC Leadership Conference. Our theme this year is fostering voice, choice, and community. And many of our uh, panelists will know this individual, but this year we've dedicated our conference to Charlie Crawford, who was our second uh, executive director of the American Council of Blind who passed away earlier this year. And it's really in memory of all that Charlie stood for, uh, the wonderful advocate that he was for our blind and visually impaired community. And I think Charlie would have a huge smile on his face tonight to see us all getting together uh, to talk about uh, our our community that we love and uh, so much. And uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a wonderful tribute to Charlie. So thank you all for being here. Uh, we've never tried a fireside like chat like this before, and I'm excited that everybody really took time out of their very busy schedule to participate. Uh, I think I'd like to go around and just give everybody uh, an opportunity to introduce themselves and tell a little bit about their organization. So I'm gonna, you guys will, will, will correct me here if I'm wrong, but I think our oldest organization is the American Printing House for the Brian. So Craig, we'll let you go first. All right, well, uh, good, good evening, everybody. And uh, uh, for, I hope everyone is doing well. I know around the country, a lot of us are climbing out of the cold and, and uh, but warmer days are ahead. So we're all excited about that. I'm uh, Craig Matter, president of the American Printing House for the Blind. And uh, um, for those, if perchance there's someone listening who doesn't know, the American Printing House is the oldest and the world's largest nonprofit um, um, production center for materials and educational uh, apparatus uh, for um, anyone who is blind or visually impaired. That's kind of what we do. Well, great, Craig. Thank you for being here. Next, I think maybe uh, American Foundation for the Blind. You all just celebrated your 100th anniversary, sure. so welcome, Yeah, Dan, and thank, thanks so much. It's Kirk Adams. I'm president and CEO of the American Foundation for the Blind, and we are in the midst of celebrating our 100th year. This is our centennial year, founded in 1921, and we are providing some really fantastic streamed events and conversations for our community and commemoration of our centennial. So if you go to afb.org slash 100, afb.org slash 100, our first uh, stream centennial event is up and our next one's coming March 4th. So everybody enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, Kirk. And then I think NFB has, uh, has BVA, but maybe a year or two. So uh, Mark, uh, uh, Please introduce the National Federation of the Blind. Yeah, thank you very much, Dan. Uh, Mark Riccobono, I serve as president of the National Federation of the Blind. Pleased to be talking to you from our national headquarters in Baltimore, where I am actually next to a fireplace. I figured that was the best place to take it from. And uh, as uh, America's Civil Rights and Membership Organization of Blind People, uh, happy to be here with um, this elite group of individuals who we're pleased to work with. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for being here. And next we'll hear from Don Overton from Blinded Veteran Association. So Don. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, so I represent the Blinded Veterans Association. We just celebrated our 75th anniversary as the only congressionally chartered 
uh, veteran service organization representing uh, blind and visually impaired veterans. So we look forward uh, to this opportunity this evening. So thank you all. Thank you, Don. And I think I'll go next with the American Council of the Blind. This is our Jubilee anniversary this year. We will celebrate our 60th year. And so uh, I am Dan Spoon, the president of the American Council of the Blind. And uh, it's our DC Leadership Conference here that we're participating in this uh, weekend. And, uh, you know, we are, of course, one of also the uh, largest and oldest consumer groups in the United States. And, uh, you know, glad to be here. Uh, next, I think we're going to go to uh, Mark Reichard with AER. Thanks so much, Dan, and what an honor uh, to be part of this group. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm currently serving as the Interim Executive Director for the Association for Education and Rehabilitation of the Blind and Visually Impaired. Um, AER is the professional membership association in our field, and uh, while our official formation date uh, was 1984, in a lot of ways, it was sort of a reformation. Our organization in some uh, way, shape, or form has really been around for, well, easily a century and, and a quarter, if not longer. Uh, so I'm really proud to do it. And uh, I'm coming up on my one year. My first day back in the syndrome capacity was March 2nd of last year. And that feels like about one month or one decade ago, depending on how you reflect on what's gone on in this last <laughs> 12 months. So thank you so much. Well, Mark, we won't we'll, won't ask you that difficult question. So, if that if that request had to come on April second instead of March second, would you have still had the same? Answer? <laughs> uh, yes, yes, uh, but yes, uh, we could not foresee. I don't think any, well, we'll talk about this in a minute. But I don't think any of us could have foreseen this how wild and crazy things have been. So, no, what a year! And and last but not least, I want to recognize Lee Nasahi with Vision Serve Alliance. So, Lee. Thank you, Dan. And that's because I'm the youngest of this. You're the kid. You're the kid. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we are. I think we're just a little bit over 40 years old. Vision Serve Alliance is also a nonprofit, and we're an association of private agencies across the country and one member in Canada um, whose primary mission is service or products to people who are blind, have low vision, or other visual impairment. We've expanded our membership a little bit and we have just shy of 130 organizational members and another 25 or so individual associate members. Well, welcome Lee, thank you thank for you. Uh, being here this evening. And again, thanks to everybody for taking time out of, uh, out of a Sunday evening to join with us this evening. And I really wanted to go ahead and delve right in there and talk a little bit about what Mark kind of referenced earlier, which was, 2020 and uh, kind of uh, the introduction of a pandemic of, uh, you know, social unrest, uh, truly an assault on our capital before, uh, you know, before uh, in, in January. So just an amazing set of events uh, that we are dealing with right now. And uh, I wanted to kind of maybe first turn it over to Kirk to talk a little bit about an initiative AFB got started which and uh, and I know all the consumer groups and the blindness community supported, and that was really uh, the project of running a survey and 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 dealing with flattening the curve. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about the motivation from that, and maybe some of the results that that came out of the survey. Sure, Dan. And, and uh, first, first of all, gratitude to you and ACB for putting this together. Um, great, great to be 
be here. And what, hi, hi to everybody out there in ACB Radio Land. And we um, should say aloha to you. So thank you. I'm also grateful to be in a, a warm, warm place today. Um, so AFB, as most people probably know, we're, we're um, a private nonprofit. We are not, although we're often confused for the council and the federation, um, we are not a membership organization. We have a, a board of trustees that uh, we recruit from across the country. We're, we're fairly small. Uh, we have 40 employees. We have a long history of research and, and public policy work. And um, kind of remaining true to our to our roots when um, COVID became uh, obviously a, a real thing, um, we pretty quickly rallied a group of researchers, including a lot of volunteers from universities, and, and created a, a survey called the flatten flatten the inaccessibility curve and. Thanks to everyone on this panel and others, there were 19 different for-profit and nonprofit organizations serving people who are blind who pushed that survey out. And so we, we received over 1,900 valid responses to a pretty lengthy survey, which is an outstanding sample size in our field. And not, not rocket science, but there were, there were six areas. We, we did see confirmation of some things we know about employment. Um, the folks who responded kind of by definition had some level of computer skills and some access to technology. And yet um, under 30% of the respondents of working age were employed. Um, a large percentage felt they were underemployed. The percentages of people who had lost their job was greater than the general population. And people had lots of issues with technology um, other areas of concern were access to medical procedures like um, COVID testing and transport Im impacts on public transportation, uh, paratransit, the cutbacks in transportation, things like that. Since then, we've done two surveys uh, called Access and Engagement focused on uh, our blind kiddos, our K-12 blind, blind kids and how they're faring in, in uh, this virtual learning environment. And uh, Dan, we actually have one week left on, I think, what, what is going to be a very impactful study. It's a, we call it the Workplace, workplace Technology Study for short. We, um, have, it's open for another week. We really want to understand what technologies blind people who are employed are using in the workplace, both assistive technologies, which job functions are being performed with assistive technology, which off-the-shelf technologies are proving uh, to be um, persistent barriers to inclusion, which off-the-shelf technologies seem to work better. Um, we're going to get a good baseline on use of technology in the workplace. We'll be able to refresh the study on occasion, and depending on what we learn, we'll be able to dig deeper into some of these areas and share the information with the field, with the technology industries, with policymakers, and again, try try to keep leveling the, the playing field for all of us. So um, workplace technology study, WTS, if you go to afb.org slash WTS, it's a pretty long detailed survey. Um, the more respondents we get, the better the data is. Um, really would love help in um, being inclusive in this survey. 
um, not only race and gender, but um, educational levels, rural, urban. We, you know, I, I looked at the data Friday and about 65% of the respondents are college graduates live in cities. Um, but we, we want, we want the big picture. So any, any, uh, any help we can get in getting that survey in more hands and filled out in the next week, um, the better. So thank you. Well, that would be fantastic. And I think you've got three uh, consumer groups uh, here present today that could maybe help you with that. So uh, Mark Riccobono, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, your membership and connections and where um, you saw the, the greatest impacts due to the, uh, the, the pandemic? And what kind of what 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 that has driven you to do as an organization, perhaps? Yeah, sure. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, the the two areas um, where real we really heard from federation members in terms of what we needed to do as COVID started to to I guess unfold, and as we started to understand it, going way back to to March, which I, I, I agree with Mark Reichert, uh, you know, depending on the day, it's, it feels like a long time ago. Um, but we really, we really focused on two areas, connecting and protecting. So we knew in early March, we um, issued a kind of a nationwide stay on all in-person meetings in our organization. And so, you know, we knew that community is at the heart of what we do. And so we immediately spun up kind of this network of, uh, uh, virtual resources so that uh, people could continue to connect. And um, the wonderful um, thing uh, that really emerged and in, in, in is, is true of, of what you typically see in our movement is, you know, people really started to create events based on the local resources, the local uh, expertise. And so we saw, I don't know, at, at its Peak, I think we had uh, 70, 80 different events outside of our regular chapter meetings. Mm -hmm. And then the second big thing um, that we really focused on was the, the protecting piece. And uh, of course, that ranged everything from, um, you know, pushing back on drive up testing because, you know, at the beginning, seemed so long ago, that was really, that was the model in most places was you had to drive up and uh, an Uber wasn't going to sit there with you. And your neighbor probably wasn't going to either. So um, we really started working with states through our grassroots network. And then, of course, um, working very heavily on voting. Also, uh, you know, as, as Kirk has already pointed out, I mean, the pandemic really enhanced stuff we already knew, right? We already knew how horrible the educational technology situation was. Uh, and that extended to so many area, other areas, including testing. Uh, so we had uh, we worked very closely with some blind students who um, started to emerge in social media to get the college board to actually produce Braille uh, for their AP test. They were basically just going to leave blind students behind. So connecting and protecting was really our focus. Uh, obviously, the circumstances of the pandemic really challenged us to think about how we could craft the business of the organization and continue to do what we do. And uh, everybody has faced that same challenge, right? So from uh, our national convention where, you know, we registered over 7,200 people, which really even blew out our expectations for what going virtual would do to, um, you know, just having completed our 
uh, Washington Seminar Week uh, just about 10 days ago, uh, figuring out how to deliver our advocacy message to Capitol Hill consistently in a virtual format. So the beauty is that um, it's really given us an opportunity to leverage the ingenuity that blind people have, the problem-solving skills, to really continue to push forward our core activities. And it's allowed us also to enhance, uh, really leverage the talents of so many members, right? Whether it's teaching origami using description or uh, gosh, I mean, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> it, it's hard to remember now. Yep. Uh, but that's, I think, part of the what what has made it exciting, even though obviously socially distanced and uh, being apart is really hard. But just to see the way people have connected with people, finding blind people who needed help who weren't connected to any sort of network, and having uh, our members who, you know, organized money to get people groceries or rides or uh, just so many great stories. Uh, and, and, and I think one of the things that has happened is uh, that's a positive out of the pandemic is it has helped a lot of blind people who were not connected to these networks get connected. There's still a lot who aren't, uh, but I think it's helped a lot of people get connected. And that's been a really great thing. I, I completely agree with you. I'll talk a little bit more about it later, but we really, uh, we, we experienced the exact same phenomenon inside of ACB. It just uh, really became a place where we provided uh, the structure for people to connect and network and socialize and, and really feel uh, filled a void of, of people being feeling isolated and alone and, and we can talk a little we'll talk a little bit more about that later but I wanted to turn to Don and from uh, from the BVA's standpoint how did your uh, consumers uh, deal with the pandemic and we probably echo the, the similar sentiments it was a unique uh, experience for us, first and foremost, contending with a federal agency the size of the Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, which plays such an integral role in the lives of our members. And when they began to shutter, uh, first uh, the blind rehabilitation centers and then the VA medical centers themselves, having to adjust and, and become really good partners with the federal agency to look at the best way forward. Uh, I, I think we did a lot of the same things. We turned to technology, uh, we embraced technology. We were able to look at everything from uh, exercise and physiology approaches with individuals virtually to make sure folks were still continuing to get up and move. Uh, but the continued uh, concerns around uh, individuals being able to access care. Uh, fortunately, the Department of Veterans Affairs heavily invested in telehealth, uh, but with that came the same uh, challenges that I think many of you experienced. Uh, we have that unique uh, generational shift in our organization right now with our World War II, Korean War, and now the aging Vietnam uh, veteran population and some challenges around technology. Uh, mm -hmm. making sure that we were deploying the technology that folks were getting the, the, the critical training that they needed so that they could maximize those opportunities. And then it really afforded us as an organization, it was a unique opportunity for us at our 75th anniversary when we shifted away from an in-person uh, convention and we really went to just virtual uh, learning opportunities and engagement 
but to really do that introspective of the organization and look at what is the next 75 years of BVA going to look like and really beginning to craft that and, and spending a significant amount of time on internal operations, uh, beginning those transitions to both digital and, and more tech-based. Our advocacy with Congress was interesting. We were able to deploy some wonderful grassroots advocacy tools that drove several uh, key pieces of legislation for us. It was interesting uh, for us as an organization, three major victories in the 116th Congress uh, versus a lot of our sister organizations in the military and veteran battle space that were challenged and, and, and didn't make the same uh, investments. And, and I don't think deployments mm -hmm. of that technology as effectively. So it, it was a unique opportunity for us. I think we've come out much better for it and we look forward to continuing to fine tune uh, what we're utilizing right now. Thank you, Don. And I, I, I think we, in some ways, uh, as consumer groups of blind and visually impaired, we're almost better positioned a little bit for the pandemic in that we are normally used to transportation challenges and, <laughs> and opportunities for folks to get together, right? And so I found early on in the pandemic, a lot of our members were actually the ones leading, uh, you know, free conference call chats with their with their friends and neighbors or their coffee group or uh, their work colleagues, or, or they were, we were kind of, in many cases, the first adopters uh, with the Zoom platform. And so, uh, I think that has been an area where uh, our community has been in a leadership role. And it sounds like Don and Mark, you all kind of experienced the same thing. Absolutely. I yeah. don't have to agree. Yeah. Well, as part of what Kirk shared, not only talking about the work environment and, and transportation, but he also mentioned education so and rehabilitation. So I'd like to now turn to uh, Lee and Craig and, and Mark and maybe start with Craig of, you know, what did you all see, uh, you know, from an educational standpoint uh, associated with the pandemic? How, how did it impact uh, APH? Sure. It's, um, you know, first thing I, I will say, uh, and, and I, I've said it before, and I know I've heard all of you echo this in your, your conferences, but we are a scrappy lot. Uh, <laughs> yes, we uh, are. <laughs> um, you know, where, where you see other education agencies that were, I think, for, for lack of a better term, stymied or paralyzed in the early days of COVID, our field did not. Our field, I mean, we just started connecting with, with each other, agency to agency, group to group, uh, trying to fill holes, trying to find out what's available, what we can do for students and for our adults. And that, it, that was the thing that probably blew, I, I mean, you know that about our field. We've been in this field a long time. We know that about the people mm -hmm. who do the work that we do. But it was, once again, it's it was just that... Um, uh, just filled the heart and you're like, yeah, I'm in the right spot working with the right group of people because uh, I didn't see anybody freak out. Uh, I saw everybody come to the table with resources and everybody's, you know, it was just, uh, it was an old fashioned uh, barn building uh, to, to put it in Amish terms. Um, um, I'm not Amish, but I don't know why I thought of Amish terms, but there we go. <laughs> It fits. It fits. I think, yeah. <laughs> so that that was the cool thing uh, about all this. But education-wise, um, you, you know, it, uh, we had to shutter for a little bit on our production floor, and of course, uh, uh, schools shut down. 
um, just just that that massive thing. And and one thing I learned early on in life and learned in in many uh, being a school principal and uh, and uh, is you never you never waste a good crisis. Um, so we had in our plan at APH a, a, a part of our strategic plan two years ago. We set up this idea that we wanted to do a better job of serving. Uh, the community. We provide them with a lot of products, a lot of really good products, but we we were kind of short on the service and follow through. And so we really wanted to beef that up. So we began building this digital platform, which was going to launch in April of 2021 called The Hive. Um, and as soon as this happened and, and the groups came together, uh, uh, Charlotte Cushman at Perkins, Cheryl Kamehameha at uh, uh, University of California, Los Angeles, reached out to our team and said, we've got some things we'd like to put online right away to get students, keep students engaged in learning. So we formed this triad partnership and then we gathered more and more, I say we, and that's the collective we, the field we, not just APH, but more and more partners came in. And, and by the time we got through and, and back to the beginning of the school year, uh, when I when I had to report out to the board and the Department of Ed this year, uh, looking from February of last year, March, when everything really took off, to December of this year, we delivered, uh, and this is just trainings for professionals um, and adults and some students, over 93 webinars. So 93 webinars, the average attendance was 95. Our largest attendance was over a thousand people. Uh, 46 countries outside of the United States participated. 46 countries. That was just, one thing it told you that this, this field, this community, every, the world was impacted by this and, and our field is bigger than just the United States. And so it was like a, a great kumbaya moment. And then we've been able to carry that on with uh, um, with the ongoing Excel Academy. We started the Excel Academy uh, as, as a response to that, the Hive, we talked about that, then it got fully launched. So all of these things that were in the future and responding to a crisis, we were able to uh, to launch ahead of time. And then it was just playing catch up and learning as we go, making mistakes. And what a great time to make a mistake is during the middle of a, a pandemic and a crisis because everyone is very forgiving. Um, so we, we took our bumps and bruises along the way, but I feel as a field and as APH, we've come out of this much stronger. We are, we are positioned, uh, we are further ahead than, than we expected to be at this point. I think the field is stronger when I speak to my of uh, my staff. Uh, the the two big uh, uh, benefits I think that came out of COVID is one is everyone became tech savvy, and yep. you know it's it's one thing to be a hundred sixty year old nonprofit, hundred sixty plus year old nonprofit <laughs> company, and what comes with a hundred sixty year old nonprofit company though too is sometimes a lot of uh, organic structure that grows over time and a reluctance to change. Well, we had no choice but to change. COVID forced everybody out of silos, made them change, made them adapt, made them adopt. Um, we still have over uh, two thirds of our entire team. We have 315 people. So roughly 200 of those individuals continue to work from uh, at home, 
offices, and that's probably going to be the future of a lot of what we do, which was part of our strategic goal too, is because we want to find brilliance, which is everywhere. It's not just in, believe it or not, it's not just in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, <laughs> and I was going to, so, so with that idea of technology, then that now allows you to recruit nationally, right? And doesn't right. require everybody to relocate geographically. No. So what, what has that meant for your talent pool? It has, it has, uh, it's been wonderful. I, I will say in a, in a nutshell, it's been wonderful because we've, we've seen that with several positions that we've been posting lately. We have people uh, from East coast to West coast and everywhere in between uh, because I, I mean, we've changed our, our business model. We've changed our, our uh, instructional model and, and uh, that has opened the doors to a lot of people that, I, I mean, we're all, uh, I'm on that tail end of the, or the last part of the boomers and part of that, uh, what is that, Gen X, I don't know what it is. I, you know, not quite old enough. Generation yet. X, right? I think that's right. after the boomers, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of us are in the same boat where we're dealing with aging parents, we're dealing mm -hmm. with uh, some additional family situations, and there's a lot of people impacted by that, that, mm -hmm. They can't leave uh, their corner of the world to come work for a wonderful agency. So uh, by changing our mindset and using technology and, and ha experiencing yeah. this growth piece at APH, um, we feel comfortable with that now. Whereas uh, nine months ago, a year ago, I, I would say a lot of, even though we, we really encouraged that, a lot yeah. of our managers and supervisors didn't feel comfortable managing from a distance. Well, now they, they are experts at how to manage staff from a distance. So that no longer is a scary thing. And so, um, you know, and I know it, it sounds funny. I'm, I'm looking at all your faces there and NFB and AFB and vision serve has done this forever. Staff all over the country. This was, uh, this was new ground for APH. APH pretty much was, if you're going to work here, you're going to live in Louisville. Um, and, um, you know, and so we've grown up, we've grown up, we have joined, um, we've joined the 21st century in that way. So it, it feels good to be one of the cool kids now. Um, uh, I've got a <laughs> smile on my face. That's great to hear. And, uh, Mark, uh, Riker, next, I want to hear from you with, uh, you know, what, what has this meant for our teachers and rehabilitation folks with the COVID? How, how has it impacted, uh, education? Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Dan. Um, sometimes, Dan, you, you and I uh, get get choked up at exactly the same moments. <laughs> yes. I think that shows that we're we're both uh, we're, we're both uh, sentimentalists or something. And I will oh, say yeah. that the reason why I bring that up is because, uh, especially in those first couple of months last year, to to get calls or emails from teachers, whether they called me or not, you know, just to be part of the conversation to hear. There's real, real pain and and fear out there, you know. Not only not only about holy mackerel, how am I going to do my job? And frankly, I'm also frightened, as everyone else, stressed out, and all the rest. But what about you know the kids I care about? What about my clients? What 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 am I going to do? And that that just fear and anxiety was just so palpable and real. Um, and I think you know we all experience that to one degree or another. But um, where you know AER fits into this puzzle because we're constantly interacting with the professionals who then say to their 
you know, let's just be frank about it, a very modestly sized, modestly resourced professional association. I'm frightened. How can you help me? Um, that's a that's a really tough position to be in. And and so as we tried to you know start to respond to that, it's certainly one of the first things that we had to to do. And of course, Dan, you we know all too well, all of us do. We had to wrestle with are we gonna do a conference this summer in person? Are we not? What's going to happen? I mean, that biennial international conference that AER puts together is, you know, arguably the once every two years family reunion for certainly the professional, you know, community, but well beyond that, uh, for sure. And then we had to say goodbye to that. So that you know, has inherent value, but then from, you know, in the little seat where I sit, uh, you say, oh my gosh, uh, <laughs> We are foregoing the largest and arguably the you know singular most important fundraising activity that keeps the organization arguably you know afloat. And holy mackerel! So if you weren't frightened before for legitimate reasons, you, you are now uh, when you, when you see that. So uh, I loved uh, Craig your comment, sort of uh, interpolating uh, Rahm Emanuel and his uh, "Don't let every crisis go to waste." I mean, I think there, there's a kernel of truth in that, which is that maybe those tough times inspire you or light a fire under you to do things that you know you should have been doing uh, for a while, but you're lazy, you're you're complacent, uh, you don't know the answers. And so then all of a sudden you're forced into doing it. So what did we do? <clears throat> a number of things, but the one that I think I'm, I'm particularly most proud of, I want to flag tonight, is... Uh, our launch most recently of a, of a continuing, our own continuing education platform, which we have styled AERELearning.org. And, uh, you know, small at first here, uh, it's just been out for about 18 days, I think. Not that I'm counting or anything. Um, uh, but um, uh, again, to, to wink, at, wink at Craig, uh, you know, we started to, you know, prepare for this by trying to get off the dime by putting continuing education live events together last August and September. And so a lot of that stuff has populated this new little e-learning portal of ours that we hope to grow into something bigger. And uh, I want to publicly thank Craig and your team. Uh, 12 of the 60 some odd now sessions uh, that are part of that continuing ed, uh, platform that we have AERE learning uh, are because of a, a, a partnership, a very generous partnership with you. And, uh, it's just another example of how, you know, collaboration, partnership, you really, I've said this in multiple contexts, uh, Dan, as you well know, when the times are tough, you really know who your friends are. And, uh, and so it's, it's great to see that. But when you look at the numbers of people who are showing up to these things, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I keep saying little AER because there are three and a half, you know, full, uh, FTE staff uh, at AER and not a whole lot of, a, you know, not a, not a very sizable budget and yet we put out these you know feeling our way uh webinars and a hundred and some people register for it and there's not a lot of attrition and 80 or 90 people actually attend the session who knew who knew right mm -hmm. and i think i mean that's a testimony among many things to how people are starving for connection wanting to learn from each other and if you put some, you know, quality content out there and say, let's get together and talk about this, people really do genuinely show up. And uh, 
so that that's really exciting. The last thing, Dan, I guess I'll say for now, based on, you know, given the, the question you put to me, and how are how the educators and the rehabbers doing? I think we, you know, for all the things people have said already, right? We're getting more comfortable just as a group. We're getting more comfortable with technology. We've had the fires lit under all of us, so you know, some of our folk who are our, our veteran folk who've been in the field who say, I, you know, I'm, I'm fine doing things the way that I've been doing it, and have been doing it, frankly, quite well. Uh, some of those folks have now, you know, by necessity, have had to come along and start playing around with this Zoom and other things. I think we've gotten to a point now where it's not that COVID has worn off, far from it, uh, it or the fear of it. It's that I think we've started to realize, you know what, um, COVID's really important, and it's critical that we talk about it. But we dare not lose sight of the fact that just because COVID has come along in the last 12 months, all of the same issues that we care about and have cared about for decades, and frankly, that are crying out for attention, for advocacy, at, you know, and all that that means, not just on Capitol Hill, but everywhere, all those same issues are still there. I mean, we, we still have issues of trying to put, you know, competent personnel in connection with the students and clients that they need just in terms of the numbers and who they are and the geographical issues, even with uh, somewhat being liberated by the use of technology to close some of those gaps. You still, I don't care if you're using Zoom and maximizing, you know, keeping people working 24-7, you only have so many warm bodies and and people get tired, rightly so. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we've got to get to a point where we we say, Let's focus on COVID as we have been, but remember that those sort of perennial macro issues in our special education system, our voc rehab system, certainly, uh, and for sure, and I'm, I am winking now, Lee, at you, because I'm sure you'll talk about this, uh, you know, trying to do something what, uh, finally in a collect, uh, concerted way for folks who are older. I mean, these are, these are longstanding issues that are still there. And somehow, while COVID gets all the attention, and maybe legitimately so, it's up to us to, you know, as advocates, people who care, to remind all of us, and especially those who know nothing about our field, that these perennial issues are still there and we still need to address them. Good. Thank you, Mark. I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and next, I'm going to turn to Lee, who's envious of your three and a half FTEs over there, Mark. And that is Lee with Vision Serve Alliance. And Lee, you are kind of in a unique position that your membership uh, it consists of a lot of rehabilitation uh, centers across the country, as well as uh, National Industry of the Blind uh, organization. So, how how has your membership uh, dealt with the pandemic this year? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, well, I, I echo everything that's already been said, but then as a, a leadership collective, we'll turn to um, what the leaders of all of these private agencies, yourselves included, were thinking as this started to unfold. And, uh, you know, I, I remember most people thinking, well, this is just going to last a few months. And then as reality really set in, like, wow, this is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And so initially, we were genuinely concerned that many of our private agencies were going to go out of business, quite frankly. Um, 
we were making decisions and dealing with the kinds of uncertainty that we've never dealt with before. There was no roadmap or blueprint for um, how to do that. And, um, you know, making those kinds of decisions make your, make your head hurt. How, where do we go? How do I, first of all, as um, the leader of a private organization, serving people who are blind, how do I protect them and make sure that they get the care that they need in these unusual circumstances? So that was dilemma number one. And like everyone has said, our field rose to the occasion, pivoted, innovated, and, and frankly, I think, thank God, and it's about time, and let's keep continue moving forward because some of these things we, I wish we had done many decades ago, but it's okay. We're there. We're moving forward. I don't think we're turning back. But then beyond that, how do I take care of my staff? There are so many things happening with our leaders, our organization staff, uh, their family members dealing with this pandemic. Um, and, you know, Ability One organizations, all of their workers were dealed essential workers. They never closed. I'm not sure everybody knows that. Their staff went to work every day and their staff wore that as a badge of honor and produced incredible results. Um, but there are many challenges in dealing with HR, as you can imagine, when you're still open, keeping everyone safe. And they did. And then finally, how do you take care of yourself, your fundraising, the economics? Um, many of our organizations are, are not well healed. You know, they, they depend on public funding. They depend on fundraising. Uh, some of them did very well this year in spite of everything. Fundraising, we, we saw donors be extremely generous, which was terrific. And in the end, yes, there were a few organizations that did close their doors, but very few, very few. Uh, most survived and most are, are um, very excited about the future. But Dan, I think the thing that I'd like to remind us and everyone who's listening is that, you know, we're, we're fighting not just a physical pandemic, but a mental health, health pandemic. Yep. This has taken a toll on all of us. And so VisionServe is, is working with its leaders to try to make sure we take care of our leaders and nurture them and, and that they have safe places and ways to take care of their staff so we can continue to move forward. Lee, thank you so much for that good advice. And I know with the American Council of Blind, uh, we had a, a conversation here just a week or two ago about work-life balance. And when everybody is so passionate mm -hmm. and so driven and when working remotely and working, uh, working yeah. in a virtual environment, you could literally go at this almost 24 by 7. Uh, witnessed by the fact that. that we're having a fireside chat on Sunday night at 7:30, yeah. right? <laughs> so, 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 how do you kind of take that deep breath and realize that there is a balance between between life and work? And and I I want to come back to you in a minute, but I I really you know I want to get to know all you guys better and gals, and I and I want our, our all our listeners to get to know you better. So. Uh, I want to kind of take you away from your day-to-day -day job 
And, uh, you know, many of us on this call are, are blind or visually impaired. So I, I, I want to start with Kirk and just say, Kirk, tell us a little bit about Kirk Adams. What, you know, are you blind? Are you sighted? What's your background? <laughs> what, what makes you tick? You know, you know, what are three things that Mark Riccobono doesn't know about Kirk Adams? So you know, well, I've known, I've share, known Mark share. Riccobono for a pretty long time. So. <laughs> hey, let's go, Don. Let's go, Don Overton. Okay, let's go, Don Overton. Know, Don. So yeah, we share so, yeah, I, share a few I, stories with yeah, Don, I'm, so he gets to totally, know you better. Yeah, I'm totally blind. I, I was born in the beautiful Pacific Northwest in Aberdeen, Washington. Uh, for your for for you grunge fans, I was born in the same hospital as Kurt Cobain, a little oh, little wow. before him. Yeah. Um, my retina, I was born sighted. My retina is detached when I was five years old in kindergarten on the playground, actually. And I became, uh, went from a sighted kid to a blind kid in a quick hurry in a couple days. And uh, my parents were very young at the time and uh, didn't know a blind person at all and didn't have any advocacy skills. And they were told, uh, you know, your son cannot come back to, to this public school. He needs to go to the state school. So, um, you know, they, they took that as, as, as correct. And, uh, they, no, they, they visited the Washington state school for the blind. This was in the mid sixties and, and weren't, weren't thrilled with what they saw there. They were both teachers. So I know Craig, Craig and crew whipped uh, W SSB into shape, but, um, uh, had a retinal surgeon in Oregon. They recommended the Oregon state school. They visited, they liked it. They quit their jobs, moved the family down uh, to Silverton, Oregon. So I could be a day student at the Oregon state school, um, learn how to read and write braille, which I do daily and uh, travel with a cane and use an abacus and type on a typewriter. And then uh, you know, threw, threw me into the deep end into public school in uh, fourth grade and uh, went, you know, went through public schools. Um, as the only blind student in school, henceforth, and uh, you know, so learned learn a, learn a lot of good survival techniques and creative problem solving, and uh, how to how to analyze and manage risk like blind people do. And uh, you know, got a got a got a degree, went to work. I'm I have a I'm married for thirty five years, two grown kids who are outstanding contributing citizens, <laughs> and. Uh, what, what else can I say? I was in banking and finance. I had the privilege to be the CEO of the Lighthouse for the Blind in Seattle. Um, I continued to go back to school. I, I've earned a master's in not-for-profit leadership and a, a doctorate in leadership and change. And um, was asked to join the AFB board I don't know, eight years ago. Had the opportunity to put, put my name forward when uh, my, my predecessor announced his retirement and uh, came on board. It'll be a year. Uh, May 1st is five years at AFB. And okay. we've uh, done a lot. We've done a great strategic plan. We've reorganized. We've transitioned programs to other homes. We've um, closed lots of offices and, and went virtual pre-pandemic, which was uh, looked look like we knew what we were doing there. And um, <laughs> you know, just it's a privilege. I'm this, we're in our hundredth year. I'm the sixth president of uh, AFB. I'm the sixth blind person to be in that role. Uh, the first um, was Robert Irwin, who was also born a uh, blind guy who was also born in Washington State. So we've, we've gone full circle in 100 years. Well, I, I thank you for sharing. And, and you know, who's your favorite sports team? Well, I, um, 
treasure my Seattle Seahawks. And uh, I'm actually on the island of Maui. And that is where I saw the Seahawks defeat the Denver Broncos 40 to eight in their only Super Bowl, Bowl victory. So I um, got a got a Seahawks hat somewhere nearby at all times. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. Don, we'd love to hear a little more about your story. Sure. Happy to share. So I was born in uh, New England, uh, actually up in Connecticut, just outside of New York City. Uh, so I uh, grew up uh, as an athlete. Uh, I was started off as a competitive swimmer in my very early years, uh, transitioned into both lacrosse and football as well during high school. Uh, after high school, I, I joined the Army, uh, went in uh, through jump school, uh, was stationed with the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, saw combat both in Panama and then over during the first Gulf War, so Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Uh, I like to tell a lot of our, our post-9-11 veterans that I was one of the first uh, test dummies for IEDs, so I did experience uh, an improvised explosive device. Oh. Uh, so penetrating uh, blast injuries, uh, bilateral uh, had some other shrapnel uh, injuries, lost part of uh, my hand, uh, other minor uh, pieces along uh, as a result of that. But a great uh, process through the medevac, uh, coming back first through Longstuhl, Germany, and then eventually landing at Walter Reed Army Medical Center here in D.C. Had a great team of surgeons from Hopkins that came up and, and pioneered uh, some procedures. I was one of the first individuals to receive uh, Maltino implants to help regulate the pressures, uh, the ocular post-blast pressures that I was dealing with, uh, minor brain injury uh, that I sustained as well. Uh, after my medical retirement, eventually uh, from the military, went on, got my degrees in uh, social work and psychology. Uh, I was more of a policy wonk, so I did my internship actually in a Senate office and ended up landing a position both first on the Senate side. And then I moved over to the house. Eventually I saw the light and I jumped over the dais and got into advocacy and got away from uh, that, that end of uh, uh, the operations. And I've been in advocacy ever since about 30 years. I've been an accredited claims representative. So I really wanted to understand the department of veterans affairs inside and out and, and take care of veterans to the best of my ability. So I've always been engaged in the claims process at some levels, but I've served as executive director with a few organizations. I joined BVA just a little over a year ago. Uh, I came in to help them out with their government relations team with some of their transitions. Uh, when my predecessor uh, stepped away, I was asked to fill the seat and eventually asked if I would take the organization forward uh, I'm still questioning it uh, back to doing, you know, as, as you were saying earlier, you know, the 24 seven, it's no doubt we really and truly uh, put our heart and soul into the things that we're trying to do. We've stayed open organizationally throughout. So our offices in Alexandria have remained open. We moved some staff remotely, those folks that we were either concerned about with pre-existing health conditions or just to help uh, distance as well. But uh, aside from that, I, I've worked across different sectors. I've been in the guide dog industry as well. So I understand that sector and I've been uh, advocating uh, on behalf of uh, the guide dog handler groups and, and just building out more and more of our, our programs and approaches uh, from that. Uh, 
avid sports fan, more on the baseball side, obviously growing up outside of New York. I've been a Yankees fan my whole life. So still follow the Mets. So, um, but, but just to counter that and the Yankees and all their success, I've been a Jets fan my entire life in football. So yet to see some of the uh, <laughs> victories uh, there, but it, but it all works out well. And um, married, uh, we're raising our, our, our last uh, of three children who's still in the home. Uh, he's, he's, he's really well. So I'm a geo bachelor now actually just moved into a new place down here in Virginia over the weekend. Uh, we maintain our residence up in Connecticut, but my 17 uh, year olds in a dual enrollment IBM program. So he's earning both his high school diploma and associate's degree uh, with software engineering, which will transition in with IBM uh, upon completion of that. So I'm happy to uh, take the time away so that he can stay focused on the program that he's in. And I'm, a regular traveler of Amtrak up and down the uh, Northeast corridor on weekends. Very good. And, and, and I, I really loved your story, Don, until you said you were a Yankees fan. That, that I know hurt. that, that hit know. me hard, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I understand you, you know, you grew up, you know, that, that makes sense. And, and what Senator and representative did you work for? So I worked for uh, John Edwards initially. So I was on the democratic side of the house and then I moved over and, and work for Walter uh, Jones, who reached, recently passed away um, on the other uh, side of the aisle. So I was in North Carolina at the time. I completed one of my degrees out of East Carolina University. So I transitioned first with Senator Edwards and then over with Walter. Fantastic. Well, great, great to hear your story. Craig, uh, you know, what got you involved in the blindness biz? Um, nobody would take me. Um, <laughs> No, I, I was a, uh, I was, uh, I, I, I think I started out life not knowing what I was going to do, although I did a lot of camps when I was in high school as far as camp counselor. So I knew I was going to um, do something with students and became an educator. And in my mind was going to be the world's greatest elementary ed and finished my degree from Western Oregon State University and found out that nobody thought I was as great as I thought I was. And uh, there really was no job. So on a, on a, uh, around that time, I had a, a good friend at college who said, why don't you come work at the Oregon School for the Blind? This is uh, a Kirk Adams and Craig Metter connection. <laughs> so I went to work at the Oregon School for the Blind and just immediately, uh, just, I, I think, I you hate to say, fell in love, but definitely found my calling. Um, worked with a, a group of young men, uh, all in that 12 to 18 year old age. And my, I was in the dorm, so my main job was uh, expanded core and just had a great time. And, and uh, y- you know, it was just one of these things, just everything from bus travel to trips to the malls to uh, doing laundry and, and uh, Oregon School had a great staff that really had high expectations for their kids. And, and so uh, it just became a question of why wouldn't we do this? Why, why wouldn't we? Why, you know, the expectation, we always had high expectations for kids because it's like, oh, well, you know, you, you can't see something, so what? Let's figure it out. Let's figure out how to make this work. And a lot of great instructors who, who gave me a lot of, uh, showed me a lot of patience. And, and uh, so then uh, about that time, Portland State offered me a free master's degree uh, to which I said, because they needed one warm body 
in order to meet their federal quota. They needed 15 people in their cohort in order to be fully federally funded. And uh, I, I said, well, you know, I, um, I'm going to be the world's greatest elementary ed teacher. So I will be your 15th member in your cohort, but I'm, I'm not going into this field as a teacher. As soon as, as soon as my ship sails in, I'm, I'm off to regular ed. And they said, that's fine. Just show up. Don't fall asleep in class and, and get a C or better. Um, so free masters. And the more I got into the science and the reading and the history and the, uh, you know, the deeper you just get sucked in, uh, you realize how big and, uh, you know, it's not, not to get overtly spiritual on everybody, but I really believe there are some jobs in life that are a calling. And I, I felt, uh, education, uh, especially as it, it pertains to um, working with students who are blind or visually impaired was one of those callings. And I was drawn to that. And, and uh, uh, so I got that degree, worked in Oregon, went to Washington State at the State School for the Blind, taught there many years, became moved into administration because I wanted to see if I could move the school forward had a lot of fun doing that, then moved into a, a state uh, director of outreach and statewide consultant for Washington State. And so, and, you know, before I knew it, almost 30 years had passed that quickly. You know, it's just like you're 30 years into your career, and that's been my entire professional career. And then APH came calling. So, um, you know, I, I, being in the Northwest, um, it's like, and anyone from Louisville, please do not take offense. Um, but I, I was a, uh, my dad worked for the federal government. So we moved around a lot and I'd seen pretty much other than new England, seen every section of the country. And when we arrived in Oregon in 1975, I knew I was home. I was never going to leave. Mm. Um, and, uh, but then I, I came, uh, the opportunity, APH came calling, and, and my wife and I, for, for her big birthday, I won't say which one, because that would be rude, but we, we took a 19-state road trip. And I remember coming back over, as you come back into the Portland area, you crest, you come right into the Columbia River Gorge, and it's just like heaven starts singing. It's beautiful, it's green, it's lush, there's waterfalls. Um, uh, waterfalls flowing with beautiful craft beer um, and, and great Oregon and Washington wine. And you just go, and we were just looked at each other and said, we could never live anywhere else. And fast forward four months later, and I get a call from Tuck Tinsley at APH. And my wife said, well, if you don't do it, will you ever regret it? And I was just like, yeah, I, I think I will. So threw my hat in the ring and um, came in to be vice president of uh, products and services, which was a position Bob Brasher had held for many, many years. And so my thought was, we're coming to APH. I'm going to work there three years because uh, Tuck was a fascinating individual. I had worked for an incredible um, person named uh, Dr. Dean Stingham. And, and Dean was this great guy, but Dean was not a big risk taker. He was, he was, well, he was a risk taker, but everything was calculated. And he had it all planned out and worked his plan and was very successful. Tuck, Tuck was a wild hare. 
effective leader, but a wild hair. And I thought, I got to learn from this guy. I know how to play it safe. I need to learn how to push boundaries. Uh, so I thought, I told my wife, well, we'll go here for three years. And then when Tuck retires, we'll reevaluate and then we will, you know, come back to the Northwest. So we were thinking three years. I, and I, I kid you not, this was the truth. At, at uh, nine o'clock that morning, first day on the job, Tuck comes up to my office, says, what are you doing at 10? I'm, I'm going to, let's go get a cup of coffee. And I said, well, okay, Tuck. And he comes in 15 minutes later and he says, well, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I can clear my schedule. We can be free. He says, well, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. So he left. And then he came back like not more than five minutes later. He says, uh, I'll, I'll, I will not use the same language Tuck used, but he said basically, oh, anyhow, I'm going to tell you something. I'm retiring in three months. <laughs> and my, I, 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 I was later that day, I kind of called my wife and I just said, you're not going to believe this, but maybe we should stop packing. Um, Cause she was still <laughs> back in, in Washington. I was now in Kentucky. Um, but long story short, it, it's all worked out amazingly well. Uh, Kentucky is my second home. It's a wonderful place. Um, I still miss my Northwest and I'll get back there someday, but, but we've made this home. So I'm live here with my wife of 36 years. We have three grown children, one in the film industry, one in computers and one in New York city, uh, works the, uh, hospitality as a manager of a, one of those bougie hotels. Uh, and, um, but, uh, and they are all doing well. Uh, my wife is a, uh, an oncology nurse and works here in Kentucky with me. And uh, I don't know, life is, you know, I, I, I think when you step back and not to beleaguer a story here for people who probably lost interest and are turning channels now, but um, I, think, I think anyone who can step back and look at life and say, uh, just feel fortunate to be where you are. Um, is a, a pretty darn good feeling. And then I always worry, the only worry I have is some days I'm, someone's going to figure out, I really don't know what I'm doing. Um, kind of battle with that imposter syndrome from time to time. Is this like, because you can't believe that you've been this fortunate to have such a good life and have life and a job that's uh, can be very meaningful and very fulfilling and, uh, you know, from time to time, you're just like, surely there's somebody out there sharper, brighter, who can do this job better than I can do. And uh, it's just a matter of time before before they, they come to the forefront. And uh, so, I don't know. Man, well, I, we're, we're all we're yeah. all replaceable. But I have to ask you the $64,000 yes. uh, question now that you're in bluegrass country. So yep. Louisville Cardinals or Kentucky Wildcats? Oh my gosh, uh, Oregon Ducks! Um, Oregon Ducks. So, so do you stay neutral? <laughs> I, I do because if you don't, you, you know, it's really funny. The roots run so deep here in Kentucky. So it's <laughs> you. You are bred that way to be a, a UK or UL, and so the best thing you can do is just stay out of it. And if you're an outsider, remain an outsider. And uh, keep your root, and you know, keep your rooting interest in 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 other areas. And <laughs> get along with everybody. Well, go Ducks. Okay. <laughs> All right, Mark Reichert, tell us your story, Mark Reichert. Oh boy, uh, let's see. I was born a 
blind upper middle class white Lutheran boy um, in uh, in southern Florida, and uh, was an only child. And everybody who knows me out there says, "Well, we 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 knew that, even though you hadn't told us that before." Uh, but uh, in any case, uh, grew grew up, uh, went to to public schools. Um, it's nineteen seventy five. It's a place called Nova. It was the only place where, you know, it's one of those things before neighborhood school uh, education was emphasized and mainstreaming and all that, just right at the beginnings of 94, 142. And so all of the kiddos with disabilities, all of the, at least in Broward County, County Florida, all the bilingual kiddos went there. Uh, as someone rather irreverently put it, every kook in creation went to the school that we went to, even though it was one of those magnet schools and otherwise you had to take some sort of test to get in, that's where they, that's where they sort of centralized all the education for um, kids who were different, frankly. And, uh, and so what a beautiful experience that was uh, just to be around uh, kid, you know, in an environment where you had just profound diversity. I'm not entirely sure based on, you know, who I was born to, where I went, uh, you know, where we lived. I'm not sure if I would have had that exposure um, otherwise, if I weren't born blind. Um, so what a gift. Uh, and then uh, let's see, fast forward through to college, went to undergrad at Stetson University. And yes, that's Stetson as in the hats and the cologne. And I, I'm already anticipating, Dan, your question. You're going to quiz me about some sort of sports thing, which, of course, I'm not going to know anything about because I'm a capital N nerd. Uh, but I will just share well, with this group. Mark, I that, lived in Deland for two years, so home of the Mad Hatters. Well, it, it, and, that's, and that's my point, and that's what's so hilarious. Right? Maybe this, frankly, has totally soured me on sports because the truth is <laughs> – Stetson it does not have a reputation for having a fierce team. And the truth is, it's not really their fault because they are cursed. With, I mean, can you imagine when you're sitting in the stands and the battle cry, the battle cry is go hats. Right? I mean, there, there is no way anyone. I mean, that does not inspire fear in the heart of the enemy. Right. I mean, it, it is not. It's not enough. Anyway, you get the point. So after that, uh, let's see. I. You know, I, I, I got out of uh, college in three years because I'm a nerd. And what else do you do when you're a nerd? Um, so uh, and then, you know, when you're what, 19, 20, 20 years old, I, you think you know everything. And, of course, you know less than nothing. So, of course, when you're in that uh, position, you say, well, wait a minute. Uh, let's go off. Let's got to do something else. You know, you, let's go off to law school. Why not? Because, I mean, after all, law school is just, I mean, it's like Maui. Right. It's it's where, you know, Kirk is hanging out right now. It's not hard work. It's not, uh, you know, especially if you think you're a brain. So anyway, I went off to um, uh, George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C., which I uh, visited on a on a college trip. It was one of these, you know, one week in New York at the U.N. and two weeks in Washington. And that was right at the 1989 you know, transition into George H.W. Bush's presidency. So, you know, we were there. We got to go to a, a couple of the of the inaugural balls. We got to go to the inauguration. I mean, this is this is a nerd's 
dream. It, it's actually a lot better than the experience Craig was talking about up there in Oregon. He doesn't understand what beauty is until you have, can have that kind of nerdy dream standing in, you know, 29 degree weather freezing, listening to George Bush give a speech. Uh, so in any case, uh, we, you know, but, but what did I, I didn't know what I was doing. I got out of law school. I did college and law school in five and a half years. Like I said, nerd. Uh, and when you're that young, you know, your concept of what you think you want to do is, well, Hey, I'm, I mean, people can't possibly live without me. So I guess what I'm going to do is I'll do these grand, uh, civil rights and first amendment cases, you know, every once in a while, maybe every few months or so when the mood strikes, you just kind of wander down the street to the U S Supreme court and you knock on the door, they let you in, you make your argument and they say, thank God, Mark, you sorted it all out for us. Uh, come back when you have other words of wisdom. And funny thing, it doesn't work like that. Uh, I'm being hyperbolic, but I think you get the point. I really, frankly, did not know. I knew that I wanted to do something uh, that involved hopefully being of some use. Uh, but when you're that young, I'm not sure that you really have the practicalities uh, uh, you know, to sort that out. Fast forward again, uh, thanks to dear, dear friends like Scott Marshall. Maybe he's listening tonight, one of ACB's former staff. Um, critical staff person at the American Foundation for the Blind, now working at the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, he uh, was the first person I met when I moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, thanks, frankly, to an ACB connection, Judy Dixon, uh, who many of you know, I'll just uh, drop that name, because she too was a Stetson alum, is a Stetson alum, uh, and so uh, was an ACB scholarship winner. She said, when you get to D.C., you should really get connected with Scott. So I did that. Thanks to that connection and others, I ended up working for Patricia Beattie. Pat Beattie, of course, played bunches of roles in ACB over the years. Uh, she worked at National Industries for the Blind. Um, they asked me to come on as an intern. I was there for about a month, and then they offered me a job. And then, uh, let's see, uh, fast forward, worked for a number of organizations in the field, including ACB, for about 20 minutes in the mid-90s, uh, 96, 97, something around there. But I will say that I've had the experience that I think few people have had the, have been blessed to have, which is um, I uh, was working at American Foundation for the Blind and uh, found out one day, oh, this organization called AER is looking for a new executive director. And I was 30 years old, right? I didn't have any real executive experience at all to speak of. And, and, and yet, uh, hopefully, the AER board found something of use uh, in me, but they were kind enough to ask me to come on. Learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot. I'm winking at you now, Lee, because I'm sure you'll, you'll say more about this, I bet. Uh, but in those early 2000s, when I worked at AER for the first time, uh, one of my sources of sort of continuing ed and professional development was the opportunity to meet with other of the CEOs like are on this call tonight. Uh, who, you know, put their arm around me and said, let me tell you something, kid. Let me tell you how it really works. Uh, or let me tell you how I screwed things up. Whatever you do, don't do, you know, whatever the hell you do, don't do what I did. And, and so having that connection through what was a different named organization, but Vision Serve Alliance was so useful. But after that experience at AER, uh, Paul Schrader, name dropping again, uh, who Craig has now seduced to come over to APH, he was my boy. I worked at AFB at the time. He said, we, we've reorganized things here. Uh, we'd love for, for you to come back and uh, maybe be our new 
we never had this position where AFB had been working in public policy for ages, of course, but they never had a dedicated public policy director, nor did they have policy and research under sort of a, you know, that bigger umbrella, which makes all the sense in the world to pair up those two things. How'd you like to maybe come back and do that work? <laughs> really? I mean, I, I, I left you guys. You want to, you want me to come back? That's really nice. And, and so anyway, we talked and I ended up going there, worked at AFB for many, many years, including for Mr. Kirk uh, for a while. And then, you know, uh, life changes, your choices uh, take you in different directions. Found myself in a, you know, a, in my own sort of life transitions, as did AER. I think AER, I think that's, we've been pretty public about this. I think AER was kind of going through some transitioning long before COVID hit. Uh, and the AER folks reached out to me and said, you worked for us those many years ago. How'd you like to come back and help us through this transition? So, of course, after Dan, I got choked up uh, and then said, of course, you know, I'd love to help. It really has struck me since then. Uh, it really is true. I'm living proof that you can go home again. And I've gotten the chance to do that twice professionally. And uh, it, it just means the world to me. Now, everyone listening on this uh, session, of course, knows that in my non-day job, role. Uh, I'm obviously very committed to our consumer movement. And so, of course, ACB means the world to me. And it was fabulous that ACB folks elected me to be um, our first vice president a couple of years ago. But needless to say, when, when Craig, when you talk about a calling, I, I can so relate to that. I've never, and frankly, sometimes you feel dragged into things, even if you get squirrely and squirmy and uh, think you have a better plan. And, uh, and frankly, often you don't. And uh, life, universe, good Lord, take your pick, or maybe all three uh, help you clarify what all, that, what all that means. Anyway, I think I'll leave it there, Dan. Now, don't tease thank me about something about sports now. That's thank not you. Fair. Thank you, Mark. And now we know you're a Mad Hatter. It all kind of makes sense. So. <laughs> So next, I want to hear from Lee Nasahi. So Lee, what what brought you to uh, to the vision uh, business, blind business? My son did. So I'm a mom. I have a master's degree in social work administration and had worked in other aspects of uh, human services. I started out in alcohol, drug abuse, and mental health, and then in early intervention services for children with all kinds of special needs. But um, our son was born when I was only 25 weeks pregnant. He weighed one pound, 14 ounces, and he just turned 40. So 40 was 40 years ago, this was a pretty big deal. Mm. And um, he uh, suffered retrolental fibroplasia, his retinas detached and they were not able to uh, reattach them. He also is cognitively impaired and has cerebral palsy. Um, so <clears throat> it was a, his birth was life altering. And as I've shared with many people, um, while there are many scary moments and difficult things that we had to deal with um, on behalf of our son, <clears throat> his struggle and his triumphs changed mine and my whole family's life for the good. I wouldn't know any of you were it not for our, our son, Joe. 
And um, I have many, many friends in this field and have learned so much. We have three younger children and they also have been positively impacted by our son's lives. Um, so we, when we receive services in Florida, I live in um, very close to Dan in central Florida. And uh, we received services at a community-based organization that was called CITE, C-I-T-E. And Dan was, Dan and Leslie were involved with that organization way back then. Um, it changed our lives to be able to find some organization that truly understood the needs of our son. It was the first organization I found, frankly, that understood the needs of our son and, and helped us be the best parents we could be for him. So I was that mom that a lot of you teachers was see coming up the front door and say, oh my God, here she comes, run. <laughs> I gave a lot of people a lot of crap. I was angry and, and confused, but um, mostly I cared about my son. And so I remember that. And many years later, I got to work for this same organization that saved our lives. And um, like you, Craig, did not know what I was doing when I first started, made a lot of mistakes, but also was fortunate enough to meet a lot of other CEOs and, and other leaders in this field. Many of you in ACB, out there in ACB land, thank you for all the mentorship that you gave me over the years and understanding. And, um, and once I had the opportunity to work in this field, I, I think I'm going to die working because I, I just love it. And there's still so much work to be done. And it's, it's a great privilege. Happy to be a part of it. Thank you, Lee. And last but not least, Mark Riccoboto. So, Mark? Well, uh, you know, I, I have had an uh, interesting trajectory uh, in my life. I was, I was born blind, uh, uh, diagnosed as blind at age five with glaucoma and aniridia. So I lost vision throughout all my school years. I went to the public schools in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I'm a Wisconsin guy through and through. Um, but I mean, I didn't know I was a blind person. I just knew I couldn't see so well. And I knew it was important to be able to see things. And I really didn't get, um, especially in my elementary school years, uh, I didn't get uh, any services really to speak of. Um, and I had two things against me, I guess. One is that I was just smart enough, uh, not the smartest, but just smart enough to get by. And uh, also, I worked my head off. I mean, my parents are both uh, hard Midwesterners, hardworking Midwesterners. They didn't go to college, but they knew how to work hard. And so I knew how to work hard. And so I got by. And uh, I knew that I could just fight my way through, which is what I did. And so I learned to fake it, right? I learned like so many other uh, blind people to fake it. Uh, I didn't know it was respectable to be blind. And so I would just went out and did stuff and I pretended I could see stuff and no one ever questioned me. Um, so I was fortunate to get encouraged by a blind mentor that I did have get to know in high school to go to the University of Wisconsin. And I was going to settle for, um, I won't name which schools, but some other schools. 
And I was fortunate to get pushed toward the University of Wisconsin and I got in. And uh, I knew, again, I, I didn't know I was a blind person. I showed up at orientation with uh, um, uh, the white cane I was given for graduating high school. I had no idea how to use it, had never received instruction in how to use it, but I showed up at the University of Wisconsin and I, I went on my way. Well, after a while, it all caught up with me and I was fortunate that I um, started looking around and I found blind people. Who, and I, so I started bringing blind people together because I needed to know what they did and how they did it. And uh, that sent me on a journey of organizing blind students in the state of Wisconsin and uh, got me interested in organizing in this field. Now I went to, the, to school to get a business degree. And so when I came out of college, uh, by the way, I, I was uh, in those days, I was privileged to win an ACB scholarship. So thank you to ACB for that. Um, I came out of college and I went into the Sears National Executive Trainee Program. Mm. I was on the fast track for retail management. I had a degree in marketing and economics. At the same time, I was doing uh, advocacy work for the National Federation of the Blind. I had become president of our Wisconsin affiliate during my senior year in college. And, uh, you know, retail, you work odd hours. And so when I wasn't working in retail management, uh, I was doing advocacy work, which was pretty much what I was doing all the, all of the time. And um, I got really interested in education. And uh, I got myself appointed to a committee. I was looking at educational reform in the state of Wisconsin. And uh, the state superintendent of public instruction came to me and said, uh, we want you to direct these statewide programs. And I said, you want me to do what? I'm, I don't know anything about education. He said, but you have really great ideas and you're, you know, you're pushing us forward. So I was just shy of my 24th birthday. Wow. The highest official in education in the state of Wisconsin said, come run these programs. And I was naive enough to say, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> Because so, you're 24, you can do anything. That's, that's <laughs> right. So um, I guess this, this um, speaks to who I am a little bit. So I went to do that. And I didn't have an education background, but I knew I needed to talk to folks, right? So I talked to folks all over the country, educators, blind people, um, you know, about changing the nature of what we're going to do. Uh, I got married shortly after that to my wife, Melissa. We're coming up on our 20. 20th year of being married uh, in 2022. And uh, I, I just worked hard. I knew that's what you had to do. And um, I just kind of took on anything that came, you know, we, we worked on the touch the universe book that came out with NASA. I started working on uh, getting blind kids into science. Cause I noticed that a lot of blind kids were being tracked out of science. And um, in about 2003, uh, I was invited to move to Baltimore to work for the National Federation of the Blind to develop our education programs. And so my wife, Melissa, by the way, my wife is also blind. We moved to Baltimore. And um, this story will really describe my career since then. I showed up in Baltimore and asked, what was I supposed to do? And the Federation had said that in 2004, we were going to have a science program with NASA for blind kids. And I said, great, what's, what's the plan? And uh, the, our president at the time said, well, there is no plan. 
uh, you're supposed to go make the plan. Um, and so that's what I have done all the time. I go talk to blind people. What haven't you done in science? Blind people say, well, we never get to dissect things. So um, I figured out how do we dissect things? So if you want a really interesting dissection, I can teach you how to dissect a dogfish shark. I've now done, I don't know, dozens of them. They're pretty disgusting, but if you want to know. Um, so I've really worked on projects in education, but I've also just taken on whatever is needed in, in the blindness movement, whether it's negotiating intellectual property, going up to the Senate to, to do something, putting together a protest, but education is really where my heart and soul is. Um, and we think about the pandemic, uh, we got to take our national braille literacy program uh, that we deliver for two weeks in the summer all across the country and do it virtually in people's homes. We had 275 kids. That's really exciting to me. Um, and that's what I've done my whole life. Probably the, uh, the best thing that I am known for is uh, 10 years ago, and one month, uh, being the first blind person to drive a, a vehicle fully independently at the Daytona International Speedway as part of our Blind Driver Challenge. One of the yeah, most I'm still jealous of you for that, man. What, yeah, one of, one of the most interesting days of my life. And those uh, are high banks over there in Daytona. They, they are high <laughs> banks. I can attest to that. And I've, I've, I've just, so um, I just have gotten into all sorts of interesting projects, and the blindness field has helped me do that. Now. Um, so outside of that, and I do live and breathe that because there's just so much awesome things I get to, to do. And, and just listening to Craig's uh, story uh, really resonates with me because I um, think, man, how, how did I get here? How did uh, just from when Craig was speaking, all I could think is he's authentic to who he is. And that's what I try to do. And so the important thing that you need to know about me is um, besides being married, I have three kids. My son, Austin's 14. He's going to be an amazing marine biologist someday. He's about to go into high school. Mm -hmm. And my daughters, uh, Oriana and Elizabeth, they're 10 and eight. They're both blind. And so uh, they have the same eye condition that I have. So we have the interesting um, prospect now. My wife is a, is a school counselor by training of um, uh, not only, uh, you know, mentoring and, 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 and raising our kids, but advocating for them in the public schools. And a lot of people say to me, well, I mean, come on, you're the president of the National Federation of the Blind. The school district must roll over for you. And I'm just here to let you know that is not true. Schools uh, view well, I, don't get me into the politics of IEPs, but, <laughs> yeah. um, we, we, you know, it's, it's a battle everywhere. Um, and, but I love being a parent, uh, first and foremost. I mean, my kids have taught me more about life, uh, learning, um, relationships than anything else. And so um, these days, especially with COVID, uh, you know, the beautiful thing about COVID is I'm home every day for dinner. Uh, with a few exceptions, but that's rare. You know, I haven't been on an airplane since February 4 of last year. So um, I'm attuning my uh, cooking skills in a, in a great way. Uh, I, I love to grill. I love to cook. I love to hang out with the kids and play games. And 
Um, I, I have a lot of pride when they do something like beat me in chess. You know, I never let the kids win. They have to beat me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, I'm a baseball fan. Uh, I pretend to play guitar, but, uh, uh, that's not something I put a ton of effort into, but, um, the joy that I have uh, on a daily basis is I get to talk to blind people all over the country. My goal is to talk to more blind people, more educators in the field of blindness on a yearly basis than anybody else. And that really informs what I do, not just in a work sense, uh, but in a day-to-day life hack sense, you know, how, how do I do X, Y, and Z as a blind person? But just, you know, when you talk to a diversity of people, you learn about, uh, there's so much amazing things you can get to do in the world and experience. And I think that is one of the things uh, about this field and why we need to continue to build the diversity of this field, because it's a great community and that community can enrich our lives. And that's really why, you know, when I was in college, I thought I'm never going to work in, in disability stuff. I'm better than that. But, you know, to Craig's point, I can't imagine what I could do that would be better than this on a daily basis. And um, so I live um, in Baltimore, six blocks uh, from our national headquarters. I've always lived, almost always lived, except for 10 years within walking distance of work. So um, I got my, got my Fitbit on here. Uh, 10,000 steps a day is my goal. So uh, after we're done here, I'm going to get about 1,500 more steps before I go home. Um, So I guess that's me in a nutshell. I'm still a Wisconsin boy at heart. Um, The Wisconsin ethic is is, uh, in my blood and um, it's the way that I think about the world. But Baltimore has become my home after uh, 17 years of living here, I love the charm city. I love the history. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, it's about people and relationships. And um, that is why um, this field is as rich as it is. So I guess that's what I'd say about me. Well, thanks, Mark. And uh, our executive, ACB executive director, Eric Bridges, uh, and his wife, Rebecca, could echo your concerns about the public school system uh, from his point of view in Virginia. So uh, no matter uh, what your uh, you know, status inside the blindness uh, movement, it doesn't necessarily give you any special privileges when you go to talk to school systems. That, yeah. That's for sure. And Orioles or Nationals? Oh, well... Uh, definitely an Orioles guy. Now I'm a Milwaukee Brewer. Are you, are you a from way back? Yeah, from oh, way yeah. back, but you know uh, the Orioles are in the uh, American League. So uh, Orioles, and I will say Camden Yards. I still think is uh, the most beautiful ballpark uh, of the new era of ballparks. Revolutionized uh, ballparks. Yeah, it, it's just a beautiful place to go. Yeah. I am going to ask a huge favor of you all. When I asked this question, I had no idea that it would take over an hour to hear your all's stories, but they were absolutely spectacular. Is there any way you all could spare another 15 or 20 minutes so we can talk about kind of the future and what, what things look for moving forward in 2021? I won't, won't keep you too long, but it would really be special if we could go a little bit longer. Is that okay with everybody? Anything for you, Dan. 
Oh. It's only four o'clock in Hawaii. So, oh, well, yeah. thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, so you, it's not even he happy hour out there. there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just yeah. want to put that out there. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, I believe it was um, I believe it was uh, Don or Craig that said something earlier about kind of how quickly uh, tech technology has moved us forward. I think both of them may have mentioned it and. I um, heard the CEO of uh, PNC Bank when the, uh, the pandemic got started. And his, his talk was about electronic transactions in their banking system. And when the pandemic started in March, 25% of their transactions were done electronically. And they felt like it was going to take a generation Mm. truly 20 or 25 years uh, to evolve to where they were a predominant uh, electronic uh, transaction-based banking system. He said within three months, 75% of PNC's transactions are now done electronically and digitally. That's how quick the, the transition took place. So I do believe this pandemic in many ways is going to be disruptive and our community is never going to be the same again. So I wanted to get thoughts from you all as we move into 2021. What do you really see as the biggest opportunities as well as challenges for our community? So uh, Don, I'm going to start with you this time with, uh, with BVA. Yeah, so I think the, the greatest opportunity for us, right to your point, is going to be, you know, how do we better leverage the technology that we now have available to us to really and truly connect? And, and it's unique for an organization such as ours, again, that's going through that multi-generational transition. Uh, the old brick and mortar style of, of putting on a hat and going and meeting at a club somewhere to conduct the order of business of a membership-based organization, it's been dying for years now. We see it mm -hmm. with all of our sister organizations, whether it's the Legion, the VFW, uh, organizations across the board. And so our ability to really be able to reach out and connect with individuals uh, is going to drive the organizational transition. Uh, so I, I think just really being able to make sure that folks that might have been out on the periphery before struggling with the challenges that we all deal with, whether it's transportation or those other approaches. And, and we're seeing it from our, our meetings uh, and our conventions. But for us, you know, it requires a comprehensive bylaw uh, amendments, uh, mm -hmm. which, which from a member driven organization can be extremely complicated. So we've got those challenges uh, for sure, and just being able to transition and make sure that we don't leave anyone behind. It's critically important that we make sure that we carry everyone forward, that we lift everyone along with us uh, through this journey. The most challenging, you know, piece for us right now is going to be, I think, uh, our critical ability to connect aid not only with our younger. Uh, active duty service members that are coming back, you know, vision is still, unfortunately, uh, just, you know, penetrating ocular injury still at 15% of our military uh, force on the injury side. But uh, with what we're seeing with the traumatic brain injury and the neurocognitive aspects of, of what's going on with the ocular 
uh, impacts uh, to be able to connect with those folks through our Operation Peer Support Program, which is really all about getting out there and creating those mentor uh, opportunities to connect and get out and, and do the things that our, our folks have been so successful at, whether it's mountaineering, hiking, uh, kayaking, and, and doing those types uh, of activities. So, you know, we want to continue to be able to expand those programs to understand that. And so I think from an operational perspective, we're looking at, you know, making uh, these transitions into technology, ensuring that folks have access to the technology, the veteran population, we still have a huge rural and remote population. So even if we equip somebody with the technology, they don't always have the infrastructure in place to be able to drive that. So whether it's sporadic cellular and or you know Wi-Fi connectivity. And so we'll be playing an integral role, hopefully in making sure that uh, that type of technology continues to evolve, that everybody is connected, so. Thank you, Don. Kirk, where do you, with your research at AFB, what are you guys seeing? What do you think the next three to five years uh, brings for us? Yeah, Dan, here, here's where I think we really see the opportunity. And, you know, we talk about the pandemic in 2020, but something else happened too, and that was Black Lives Matter. Yes. And the, the catalyzing the discussions around systemic oppression and built-in barriers that are just not acceptable and how uh, those systemic barriers and, and oppression um, uh, not only impact African-American individuals in our society, you know, Black and Indigenous people of color, but it applies to, to women in, in certain structures and gay and trans people and disabled people and blind people. So, you know, we're really excited about the opportunity to engage in the conversations around inclusion and systemic oppression and mm -hmm. intersectionality, blindness cuts across all those demographic categories. How can we use the fact that these conversations are happening to broaden the discussion to include uh, our perspectives? Uh, let's talk about inclusion globally. How do we knock down the barriers and bring everyone everyone, everybody, everybody and to the circle around the campfire? How, how do we bring everyone's talents and skills and experience to bear on you know, solving the huge problems we, we face as humankind? And that, that means um, thinking about systems, thinking about barriers, thinking about um, proactively being inclusive. It, thinks, it, it, it speaks to let's not talk about making something accessible. Let's talk about inclusive design. To, to create a barrier-free environment for everybody. So it, it's really exciting. Our, our centennial year, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say again, afb.org slash 100, afb.org slash 100. We're going to have some conversations about these things. Um, that'll be a bit available to everyone. Um, we you know, te Technology, obviously, um, huge opportunities, but we think the real game changer is to um, leverage these concepts and be inclusive of people who are blind as our society comes to understand and, and address these issues. I, I couldn't agree more. We are working with David Rubin, the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And it's been amazing to see how those barriers around disability and vision loss have come down. We're not there yet, but just the fact that the, the conversation is taking place. 
that people in power are listening that didn't listen before, I think is is a game changer, but we've got to keep that momentum going. Uh, Mark, what, what are you finding uh, uh, with NFB? Uh, what do you see as the opportunities for consumers? Well, so we've already talked about technology and mm-hmm. uh, that's why uh, our um, legislative agenda is really all about making sure that uh, accessibility is happening throughout the technology assets that we have in the nation, whether it's voting, whether it's website accessibility, which is a battle that uh, although we've won in some places, we're losing on a daily basis based on the number of of websites that are created. So we really need an aggressive strategy in that regard. But the thing is where we are today, we have some strategic opportunities because of the pandemic, right? So all of these old guard institutions have continued to require wet ink signatures. Uh, most notably the Social Mm. Security Administration. So we saw the pandemic as, okay, this is our opportunity to stop the requirement that you have to physically sign something, even though there are many uh, legitimate ways to verify who you are. Same for voting, right? And we want, um, and that's where the opportunities are emerging to get electronic submission of voting. Um, 2020 was not the right strategic time for that, but this new election cycle is going to create an opportunity for that. And so these are the kind of things that we have known are things we want to get to. And now it's time to seize those opportunities. There are two other things that I would say, um, one is education again, um, you know, Craig alluded to this, that the pandemic has forever changed the way work's going to happen. It's also changing the way education's going to happen. And we need to define what that opportunity means for blind people, especially blind kids. And uh, we think that there's a great opportunity to do that now. So the Federation, we've relaunched our Teacher of Tomorrow program to help make sure that the next generation of educators in the blindness field are, um, uh, I'd say, tech forward in terms of their experience and also deeply rooted in the experience of blind people. Um, But also uh, the idea of diversity and inclusion, I want to underscore. We're seeking equality in society. And that means as a movement of blind people, we have to be prepared to take on the hard conversations. And from my perspective, we have to be prepared to lead on those issues from our authentic experience as blind people. So diversity and inclusion, sexual assault, other inequalities, these are all difficult areas that don't have easy answers. I think it's up to us as leaders in the field um, to make sure that we can define these issues and charge forward on them in a way that's authentic to blind people. And that is really going to challenge a lot of the assumptions that we have made, um, even about what we want in terms of equality in society for blind people. And I think that's incredibly challenging. 
it's also incredibly inspiring when we can get people together with a commitment to tackle those things. And so I see that as um, what I have been uh, telling our team leading into 21 is we're leaning into these issues. We're not afraid of these issues. Uh, it doesn't mean they're easy, but we're going to lean into them because the only way we're truly going to get to the full integration of the blind into society on terms of equality is to wrestle with those big, nasty societal issues mm. that pervade our communities as, as well as anybody else's. So I think those were the opportunities are. There's a lot of great work ahead. And the fact that we continue to connect and protect in this environment together, I think is what gives me a lot of optimism about what we can do together. Great, Mark. And I, I want to thank NFB and I know we're with ACB, with Eric and Clark and John and Anil, we all kind of came together and worked on accessible mail in voting uh, this year in 2020 in several different instances. Our state affiliates joined together in, in lawsuits and, and really together, I think it made a really uh, strong impact for mail-in voting. We're not there yet, uh, but I think it just showed that when our organizations work together, uh, what a strong voice we can be. And uh, so I appreciate those efforts and uh, I've really enjoyed the conversations we've had over the last few months. Yeah, thank you, Dan. And Lee, um, with Vision Serve Alliance, I have the opportunity to serve on a lighthouse board in my spare time. And what's really been interesting in that lighthouse board that has an NIB component, we saw that a call center that had 30 to 40 employees uh, had a contract with the uh, uh, employment opportunities group that, uh, that handled unemployment insurance for the state of Florida. And now they've gone from 30 seats to 40 seats to 60 seats to 120 seats to now perhaps a contract for 300 seats. They're, they're having a hard time finding blind and visually impaired people that are trained to take these positions in the future. So how have you seen employment impacted uh, by your members inside of Vision Serve Alliance? Oh, yeah. Well, the many of the organizations that are affiliate, affiliated with NIB are experiencing that, Dan. There's tremendous growth opportunities. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure how they're going to contend with it. They're growing faster than there are people. So um, I hope they rise to that occasion. Um, but I think the, the opportunities for us um, through our private agencies that are, are new that I want to capitalize on through VisionServe is, first of all, our member engagement has never been higher. And I think that's because we now meet through Zoom. And while it can be wearing and um, we all get tired of it, it's it's actually accessible and we can do this. We don't have to jump on a plane and wait three months to sit down and talk together. We can schedule a meeting next week and have quality conversations about issues that matter. And we're doing that. So I think the opportunity is there for us to truly work on uh, big issues like Mark was talking about together and, and get some of these things done. The collective opportunities are, are tremendous. I also think the opportunity is that 
because we've had this year to think differently, we're a little more comfortable with it. We are thinking outside of the box and I want to continue to challenge us to do that and, and look at solving issues like how the heck are we going to pay for vision rehabilitation services? This is the holy grail for me that we not rely on bake sales and uh, things like that to pay for life-changing services that only 5% of people who need it are getting right now, especially for people my age, the aging group. Let's make a difference. I believe this next five years, we can and will figure that out. Thank you, Lee. And I want to thank Vision Serve Alliance coming out of your conference last fall. Um, be you really kind of you know I'll say the fall before the pandemic hit. You know the fall of a year yeah. ago, really fall of nineteen. You really put together a group to uh, to concentrate on public policy and have involved many of the policy directors from our from our different uh, associations here. And I want to thank you for starting that. And I think a lot of productive conversation has come from that. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you all for participating. Looking forward to the next few years. Great. And then we'll kind of end today with Craig and, and Mark. So Craig, again, back to education and American Printing House for the Blind. Where do you see things going here in the next uh, three to five years? What what is what is this disruption meant for for your association? Well, you know, a couple, three things. So, so I'll try to hit these points real quick. The first is I think we all have to come to the realization that there will never be enough fully trained personnel, and I I. I that pains me to say that because this is such a wonderful field, but the, the number of people that are exiting the system due to retirement and age, we cannot keep up with, with new teachers coming in. The people coming in are wonderful and dedicated, but there's been a shortage for over 40 some years. We've been doing the same thing over and over and over again mm -hmm. and assuming it's going to get better. If we just recruit a little harder, we can get more people. There's, there's some truth to that, but I think the reality is, is, we, we got to settle into this new reality and, and look at what are the resources. We've just trained up an entire nation on how to learn different, how to grow leadership different, how, how to create different. I think we need to employ those new skills and find our new, uh, our, 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 do our training that there's got to be a way. So it would be a waste of all this uh, opportunity if we don't try to uh, pivot and, and move this in a direction that's going to yield and meet the needs that we have. So there's that whole, uh, there's that one, one piece there. The, the second piece is as an agency at APH, the, the one thing that has been wonderful for us, and that is, is we cannot rest on laurels. The past is the past. Yeah. And, and you build French. I mean, there's a lot of great foundational stuff from that. So we're not ignoring that, but the reality is, is the, the days of being able to say, well, we'll catch up with everybody else because we're APH. Those days left us years ago and we, we adopted a different attitude years ago, but this, this last nine months to a year have really um, just hit that home. And I see a hunger within our own staff on the, from the production floor uh, through the people who are doing outreach is just this, this strong demand for moving forward, which is exciting. 
Uh, so we, we're going to be responding to that as an agency, learning to become more agile and learning how to meet the needs. And a lot of that is, you know, it's getting this, this balance of both product and service. Right now, APH is probably, well, right now we're, in a, we're getting better. We're probably 70-30, uh, 70% product output, 30% service output. And one of our goals uh, within three to five years is to balance that out 50-50. That doesn't mean we're going to cut back on the number of products we're doing, but it's basically meaning we are going to up our game in service and in support. And the biggest way we're going to do that, and this is the final point, is we really believe as being a, a fortunate agency that has a steady income uh, coming in, we have a responsibility to the entire field. We are only going to be a successful as we can help everyone else be successful. We have got to partner with everybody in meaningful ways. Um, and, and sometimes that may be uh, you know, financial support, but a lot of times it's platform. And if we do this right, there'll be room for, and I'm speaking a lot of cliches, so people, I, I apologize that, but it, I want to paint this picture of the idea of the, of the long um, table and every bringing everybody to the table, uh, both who are new to the field and as well as people who've been here a long time, but just letting everybody come in with the gifts they have and really being there together. Uh, that's why I appreciate AER. I appreciate uh, um, um, vision serve and and uh, and all of you have been wonderful partners. Uh, I. I, I, I Feel blessed to call you friends, uh, uh, Kirk and Mark, and and uh, and Mark, and and you know it's it's uh, I and as much as we've gotten good with the virtual, I tell you once the uh, fourth point, which don't count as a point, but once we're all vaccinated <laughs> and those numbers come down, it, it's like I I'm I'm gonna start we're gonna have a party. Well, I tell you, I'm gonna hug strangers <laughs> and, and lick light poles because I'm. <laughs> I'm I am just ready to be in the uh, in that elegance company of strangers, and with all of you, would be even more sweet. Just to hang out together, and uh, um, virtual is great, and I think we need to do as much as we can. But we still need to afford ourselves that opportunity just to absolutely just to you know be there and in, in, in everyone's wonderful company. So looking forward to those days. Uh, and before I send it to Mark to close us out, Lee and, and Craig, you, you said something that, that kind of hit a nerve with me, and that is, you know, lack of resources, lack of funding. And then there's kind of this elephant in the room, which is the, the occupational therapist and the medical services and that industry that has 18% of our GDP uh, nationwide right now. Do you see a play as we move forward for the medical side of rehabilitation, occupational therapists to play a larger role in providing services to our community? Yes, but I also see a role at insurers paying for our, our professionals too. Mm. Yeah. I, I totally, I totally agree with that. That's, that's where that, that pot of money is. So everyone can get the services that they need, whether it be O and M. I mean, I, I find that amazing. Is we we uh, you got to find a bake sale to pay for canes? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Braille or you know braille devices or uh, yeah. But motorized it, wheelchairs are paid for by Medicare. You know, yeah. it's but yeah. not hearing aids. 
and right. not Kane. Yep. And uh, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. That's that's something that I you know this is one of those great poly everyone bound you know one big voice. I think that's something we can change. I, what Mark Riccobono said earlier there that's there's a there's a huge cry there that that we need to be treated equal and what uh, uh, Kirk was talking about uh, with intersectionality and diversity and inclusion. So yeah, what would the world be like for us if our organizations got to focus the the lion's share of their attention on providing quality services to as many people as they could instead of how to pay for it? Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, Mark Record, I'm going to give you the last word tonight uh, from an educational standpoint. Where do you see us in the, in the next three years? Oh, my gosh. Uh, my little brain is just on fire after all those last conversations. <laughs> oh, it, 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 it almost hurts. Uh, it's, there's so much. Um, I would say a couple of things. This is just going to be a bunch of bullet points because we don't have the time for any of my little far too wordy sermons. Um, we, I, I, the, the truth is that uh, some of us, and I'm guilty of it, uh, others on this call, frankly, are guilty of it. I think we, in the blindness system historically, for all kinds of historic reasons, or even just because we care about our individual organizations and we want to promote ourselves, we you know, puff each other up, puff ourselves up. The, the largest organization of blind men and women in this country is AARP. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they don't, they, they, they will never, they would never say that. Their membership would never identify themselves as being quote unquote, our people. Uh, and that fact um makes a, a real challenge for the rest of us in terms of being able to say to them, uh, we've got something you need, even though you don't know that we exist. Uh, it's a challenge for us internally as we stare into the mirrors of conscience and we say, um, we're proud to be women and men who you know, live with vision loss, but these other folk don't see it the same way, literally and figuratively as, as, as we do. That's a, that's a, that's a huge challenge. And that's not a, that's not just a marketing challenge. That's a public policy challenge. It's a funding challenge. It's, and, and we don't have the time to talk through all that. I just put it on the table to say, when we talk about, you know, how are we going to tackle the issues in the years to come? That whole universe of stuff has to be front and center uh, for us if we're going to make any uh, difference there. I don't, I don't, um, if I say that I disagree with Dr. Metter, that probably means he's right and I'm wrong. And I will just say that I'm I'm wrong, I'm wrong, uh, as Dan can attest, uh, once an hour on the hour. Um, But I, so while I, I, while I sympathize with the notion that we've talked about personnel shortages for years, I will tell you from just one, one chubby Lutheran boy's perspective, okay? We've talked about it a lot. I don't think we've done nearly enough to even begin to address it in anything looking like a serious way. 
We have jawboned about it to death, but we we have not really done the, the 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 largest thing that the blindness community has done with respect to personnel preparation came out of an effort that's now 20 years old and it, it was revolutionary we we've now have the new generation of phds in our field uh particularly in the special education area to to carry us forward and god knows i mean i love them I, they're wonderful but that's just special education and it's just at the doctoral level. Just imagine if we could focus that same kind of energy and effort in a number of other areas, not only at the sort of frontline, you know, professional level, but well beyond special ed. Uh, and, oh gosh, let's talk a lot more about mm. that. And I guess the wrap-up, Dan, com uh, comment I would make would be, um, it, it, I really believe this with all my heart. I think we, the whole COVID experience of this last year, if nothing else, and this is why, Dan, I love your example, the, the, the PNC example that you started this uh, colloquy about. Um, what that shows is that if there is enough of an inferno under your bottom, you can change the world and you can do it in a time frame that, you know, sitting around in boardrooms, literal or virtual, as you play around with your little strategic plans and you say, well, let's do it over the next five years. You know what? No, maybe we can actually do it in a shorter period of time, a lot shorter. If you really are committed to doing something, maybe you can actually do some things you had no idea you had the capacity to do if you just put your mind and heart into doing it. And this, the blindness field has done it. Our country's done it. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm going to put the pom-poms down now, but I, I just, I just, <laughs> But I just, I just say that I, I think what, what COVID has shown all of us, I think, is that in, in our response to it as a country, as a field, is that just because there is some kind of a seemingly wicked problem, uh, and just because we've tried to flirt with it for decades and haven't really moved the needle, is no reason at all for saying, you know what, that was then, this is now. And so let's try to turn the page. All right. I'm going back on mute now. <laughs> Thanks. Thank, thank you, Mark. And I want to end tonight by just saying something that Craig said earlier. Don't let a good crisis go to waste. And I, I really, those words resonate with me because I do not believe that our country changes when things are going good. I think people are open and acceptable to change when things are not going so good. And this crisis, as Kirk said earlier, has really lifted awareness of diversity and inclusion. And I think we miss the moment as a blind and visually impaired community if we don't rise to that challenge. So I thank you all so much for your participation tonight. So Craig, uh, Kurt, Don, Mark, Lee, and Mark, Thank you all so much from the American Council of the Blind. Thank you for participating in our first ever fireside chat. I hope this becomes an annual event. And thank you all for being the wonderful supporters you are of our blind and visually impaired community. Well, thank, thank you, you for so your thank leadership, you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody have a good evening and aloha, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> good night, everybody. Good night.
Thank you.